and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. I'm your host, Scott Miller, where each week I get the enormous privilege and opportunity to interview some of the greatest minds in the world, whether they are best-selling authors, business titans, Hollywood celebrities, scientists, researchers, or even sometimes people that may not be a household name, but have experienced or actually survived some kind of trauma. And from their, their, their experience, we can learn something about our own lives and leadership skills. I'm also the author of Franklin Covey's multi-volume series titled Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Your Greatest Minds, where volume one and volume two are now out both in print, digital, audio, and video books, where each year I am honored to be able to write a book about 30 of my favorite guests on the podcast. Favorite meaning they had a transformational insight they shared that I thought millions of readers and watchers and listeners could benefit from. Sometimes it's shared on air, sometimes off air. And with the permission and agreement of 30 guests, I write a new volume, volume two out now, Master Mentors, onto volume three, launching in the fall of 2023. In many ways, I've also patterned my own interview style, this podcast, and my writing after today's guest. We had him on about a year ago where he wrote a seminal leadership book called How to Lead where he, from his own interview programs, took transcripts and his own insights and put them into a book called How to Lead. People like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Oprah Winfrey and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson. And today we are fortunate to have him back on. His name is David Rubenstein. He's the author of the new release, How to Invest, tagline Masters on the Crafts. He, of course, is the co-founder of the very famous Carlyle Group. He is a New York Times bestselling author and philanthropist here in the U.S. David, welcome back to On Leadership. Thank you for having me. My pleasure to be here. Great to have you back, David. We're going to talk today all things about investing at the macro, micro level. First, David, would you rewind a little bit because you weren't born as an investor. Perhaps you had a mathematical mind, but your career was a little bit serendipitous, right, in terms of how you came to where you are at the Carlyle Group. Talk a few minutes about where you were and how you got here. Well, I grew up in Baltimore, the uh, uh, only child of uh, two blue-collar workers, and I had to get scholarships to go to college. I went to Duke University on a scholarship and then the University of Chicago Law School on a scholarship, expecting not to practice law very much, but to go into government. I did practice law for a few years. I did work in government as a deputy domestic policy advisor to President Carter for four years in the Carter administration. Then I went back after we lost the election to Ronald Reagan and practiced law in Washington, not that successfully, and recognizing I wasn't a great lawyer and wasn't that interested in it, I decided to start the first private equity firm in Washington in 1987, and it's now going to be one of the largest in the world. David, your book is an interview book in that you create and curate transcripts from interviews you've had with some of the most remarkable investors, highs and lows of our generation, where you also pepper in your own insights. And before I get into the book, I also want to ask you to maybe check your humility for a moment with your permission. I'd like you to talk a little bit about some of the philanthropy you've been privileged to engage in as a result of the success of you and the Carlyle Group. You are known as, I think, by many as a patriot of American causes. Will you take a few minutes, like I said, and check your humility and just maybe remind some of our listeners and viewers about some of the projects you've been fortunate and passionate to have invested in across America, things I think will be near and dear to many of our listeners. Thank you very much uh, for that. I was an original signer of the Giving Pledge, and I'm committed to giving away the bulk of my money Uh, more than half for sure. And to date, I've done things like uh, restore historic buildings, the Washington Monument, 
the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, the Iwo Jima Memorial, Arlington House, Monticello, Montpelier, Mount Vernon, things like that. I've also bought historic copies of, of uh, valuable documents and put them on display so Americans can see them, including the Magna Carta, Emancipation Proclamation, Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights, and the Constitution. I've also tried to give my time to organizations that I think are very helpful to our country. So I've been chairman of the Duke University Board of Trustees. I'm currently chairman of the University of Chicago Board of Trustees, and I'm on the Harvard Corporation Board, which runs Harvard. I also have, I'm currently the chairman of the Kennedy Center, the Performing Arts Center in Washington. I'm the chairman of the National Gallery of Art. I was the chairman of the Smithsonian, and I'm the chairman of the support board for the Library of Congress. And I also chair the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. So I've tried to be involved by giving my money, my time, and my ideas to the extent that people will listen to them. So that's what I've tried to do. David, it's my decision as the host to spotlight that because I think it's such a great inspiration to the rest of us who may not have earned billions of dollars or be in the stratosphere of you in terms of philanthropy, but it just reminds all of us that uh, we all have a, a call to serve. We have a call to give back. In fact, one of my favorite stories about you is your offer to help with the Washington Monument. If I have it correctly, there was an earthquake in Washington, D.C. some time ago, and great damage was done to the monument. Will you just take a minute and kind of recap what happened to the monument and how you and others were able to help restore that? Sure. The Washington Monument been around for quite some time. It was actually probably opened around the late 1880s or so, and um, it had earthquake damage in uh, a few years ago. And I went to the Park Service, which runs the the, uh, the monument, and said, I would put up the money to, to fix it. How long would it take to fix it? And they said, well, we have to get money from Congress. And I said, well, don't wait. I'll put up the money. And I put up the money necessary to fix the uh, Washington Monument. Eventually, the Congress put some money in, too. And uh, it was restored. And, and ultimately, I climbed to the top of the Washington Monument on the outside with the help of the, uh, of the, of the National Park Service and the Secretary of Interior. And uh, it was an example where I, I called it patriotic philanthropy, giving back uh, to our country to remind people of the history and heritage of our country, because our population doesn't really know much about our history and heritage relative to what people should know, in my view. And so to the extent that I try to fix historic monuments and memorials, it's really designed to get people to attend them, look at them, learn the history, and learn more about our country's history. David, I mentioned that because as a guy from Utah, originally from Florida, whenever I go to D.C. three or four times a year, I think about you when I tour these memorials, and I thank you for your patriotism and your model of philanthropy, genuinely. Let's get into this book. You've titled it How to Invest, Masters on the Craft, where, like your previous books, you highlight some of the greatest minds in the industry. But today, I'm going to take a little bit of a different tact, because although you give great credit and put a spotlight on these people, you yourself also have learned lots of lessons, uh, good and bad, about how to invest at all kinds of levels. What I'd like to do is maybe have you re-educate our audience. I know lots of well-educated MDs, PhDs, JDs, people that earn six, seven figures in their craft that may still not know the difference between a hedge fund and a VC or private equity money. They might not understand uh, cryptocurrency. So I'll reference some of your interviewees, but I'd also like you to kind of opine in on some of the things that you've learned along the way. You organized the book into what you call mainstream investments. Things like fixed income, public equities, real estate, private wealth and family offices, and then endowments. The next part of your book and interview series, you organized what you call alternative investments. Tools like 
hedge funds, private equity, buyout, distressed debt and venture capital. Terms everybody's heard, but not everybody understands or knows about. And then lastly, you call this section cutting edge investments. Things like cryptocurrencies, SPACs that we'll talk about in a few minutes, and ESGs that we'll also talk about. Let's start from the beginning, if you will. Uh, a lot of people know, and some don't, that many high net worth individuals have what's called a family office. And sometimes that differs from how their institutional investing happens. Would you kind of level set our listeners and viewers on what is a family office and why does it matter? Well, uh, many, many years ago, probably more than 100 years ago, uh, the Rockefeller family set up a family office and other families that were very, very wealthy uh, and the wealthiest families in the United States, the Hillman family or, or the Carnegie family, has set up family offices to invest the money the family had uh, made and also to some extent pass it to the next generations. Uh, family offices can also pay the bills, manage the real estate, deal with trusts and estates issues, things like that. But uh, some family offices only invest. I have a family office that is basically an investment arm, relatively speaking, doesn't do other things. And uh, people have family offices because they have more money than, than, than it seems appropriate to just give it to a money manager here and there. They really want to consolidate things and develop their own team and their own staff uh, meeting their own personal needs that the family might have. To our viewers and listeners, I promise you this will become more relatable. In the meantime, David, thank you for placating me and agreeing to just kind of level set on some definitions. I think, uh, as you know, people can be very successful in their own industries and line of uh, occupation, not have a lot of knowledge around investing in the finance world. Uh, recently, we were privileged to have Ray Dalio on the program. We talked about his books and learned a tremendous amount of him from him, not just about investing, but about looking at long-term history and recognizing how things repeat themselves generationally in centuries, and those that understand that are more likely to be successful in their business and careers. Will you remind us what a hedge fund is and why it's important? The first hedge fund was set up in the late 1940s, and it was basically designed to say, well, normally somebody would buy stocks and bonds, and if it goes up, you do well. If it goes down, well, you get hurt. Uh, a hedged fund, as it was initially called, was saying that we'll take these investments we make, let's say buying stocks, and we'll hedge them so that if it goes down, we're not going to lose as much money as you might otherwise lose because you're hedging by one derivative or another. So the hedge funds are supposed to protect you against the downside, maybe modulate the upside a bit. Uh, hedge funds today are a gigantic industry, and people that invest with them are generally investing with people who are really, really smart. These people are getting about 20% of the profits, so they're highly motivated to do well. And these people believe who invest with them that they're going to get rates of return that might be 15 to 20% or 25% annualized rates of return, much more than you would normally get just putting your money in the stock market. David, safe to assume the common investor like me that may have uh, ownership in um, common stocks, bonds, mutual funds, may have an IRA, 401k. Someone like me typically is not involved directly or indirectly in a hedge fund, correct? Hedge funds usually want $5 million minimums. Sometimes they might make exceptions, maybe a million dollar minimums. And there are ways to get into some of these funds. But generally, they're looking for people that can afford to put in something like $5 million or more. Some people might put in $100 million in a hedge fund. And institutions might put in a billion dollars or something like that. Sovereign wealth funds have staggering sums of money now, yeah. and they can invest it. So if you have $100,000 to invest, I would think that a hedge fund might not make as much sense as basically a uh, public uh, equity kind of um, 
uh, I would say, exchange fund or an ETF or something like an index fund. David, you mentioned there about sovereign wealth funds. Will you re-acclimatize to everyone what that is and what those mean? The first uh, sovereign wealth fund was said to be the Kuwait Investment Authority, set up maybe in the, in the 1950s to manage the oil money that it had. Sovereign wealth funds are typically funds that a country's own and they take their excess cash, typically from oil, let's say, or something like oil, and they invest it in stocks, bonds, hedge funds, private equity funds, designed to get a good rate of return on the money. So the Saudi Arabia has a very large one called the PIF fund, the public investment fund. Uh, the Norway has a very long, long, large one as well because of its oil money. So sovereign wealth funds are designed to uh, keep this, the wealth of a country uh, uh, doing very well in terms of its investment return. If you just have a billion dollars or 10 billion or 100 billion dollars and you just kept it in cash, you wouldn't get a high return. But if you have good investors investing that money for you, you probably get a much better rate of return. These are different than public pension funds in the United States or national pension funds, which have an obligation to pay out to the recipients. Uh, they're, they're, that's an annual amount of money. So like the California State Pension Fund, or CalPERS, uh, is for the public employees in California, and they get a pension every month or however often the distribution is made. That's different than a sovereign wealth fund. And sometimes they're vanity projects. I think it's the Qatari fund that owns Harrods in London. Am I right? I mean, sometimes they're not big high return investments. Well, that actually investment is a very high return it one. Is. They paid about a billion pounds for it. It's probably worth about four billion pounds now. So they would say it's pretty, pretty good investment. But generally, uh, they try to make uh, investments that are uh, going to get a good rates of return. And sometimes they're very visible, like the one you just mentioned, Harrods. But they tend to be sometimes good investments. Not every investment works out perfectly, of course. But uh, you tend to have pretty smart people working at these sovereign wealth funds investing that money. David, I appreciate you being the professor on our podcast today. A couple more, and I'm going to walk into some of your principles right. of investing. We use these words a lot, private equity, venture capital. Everyone's got a side hustle. Everyone's thinking, dreaming about, you know, uh, maybe doing their own thing someday. Talk about the difference between private equity and venture capital and when and where might someone be pursuing one over the other. Right. When somebody says private equity in the United States, that phrase usually means all types of private investments. So it could be venture capital, you're giving money to people to start new companies. It could be growth capital to give money to people that have, companies have already grown a little bit but need more money before they go public. You can also include buyouts uh, as well or distressed debt, things that are going to get a very high rate of return relative to what you get in the public markets. Now, outside the United States, the phrase private equity means buyouts, buyouts exclusively. So when people talk about private equity, they are often confused about what the private equity firm term really means. But in the United States, it can mean a whole variety of private investments, including buyouts. Outside the United States, it generally means buyouts. And buyouts are when you buy a company using typically some leverage to enhance the return. You make the company work much better, hopefully. And then after four or five years, you get a rate of return that might be 20% per annum, which is a much higher rate of return than you might get just by putting your money in the stock market. Dave, we're going to come back and talk about um, cryptocurrencies and things like that in a moment. Let's talk about some of your own guidance around really principles for wise investing. In your book, you talk about all the things you think that the interviewees maybe have in common. And you've also talked about things that you've learned as well. You open the book with uh, a reference to one of my life heroes, and that is James Baker, former Secretary of State and I believe also Secretary of Treasury. In fact, one of my favorite photographs of all time is the photograph of James Baker, I think, holding the foot 
in the hospital room or in the bedroom of former Vice President or former President George H.W. Bush. It's a beautiful photograph of two very, um, two heroes, two patriots of our country. You talk from a lesson you learned from James Baker. You say that, um, I'm trying to find here, prior preparation prevents poor performance. Riff on that. Well, Jim Baker's father was a, was a Marine, as Jim Baker was, and uh, they really, he really believed in discipline. He believed in waking his son up, Jim Baker, with throwing cold water on his face in the morning just to make sure he you know, got up. Um, but his father in, uh, instilled in him the, the phrase, uh, prior preparation prevents poor performance, which means be prepared. And Jim Baker always was. Jim Baker would add to that, prior preparation prevents piss poor performance, but essentially the same concept. David, let's talk about some of the commonalities you found in the um, dozen plus people you interviewed for this book as a compilation. You talk about consistency and background. Talk about that. Most of the people I interviewed who are the greatest investors in our country in all different categories are people that generally come from blue collar families or middle class families, not very wealthy families. They generally were very good students, particularly good in math. Uh, they generally are people who have enormous amount of intellectual curiosity. They love to read. They are people that are not afraid to make a mistake. If they make a mistake, they tend to own up to it. They tend to have a fair amount of humility because they've made a fair amount of mistakes as you do in the investment business. They tend to be fairly philanthropic in the end and they tend to enjoy what they're doing so much that it's really more pleasure than it is work for them. And last and most importantly, they tend to defy conventional wisdom. Whatever conventional wisdom is where everybody's going, they generally go the opposite way and that's why they've actually done well. They don't, let's say, when the markets are going down, they don't get out of the markets, they go into the markets. David, keep going. Talk about the role that failure played consistently in some of these investors' lives. If you are an investor, you have failed somewhere. Nobody is perfect in, in, in every investment decision. Warren Buffett, everybody's made mistakes. And, and all of these investors have learned from these mistakes. The really good investors say, okay, I made a mistake. I'm getting out of it. I'm going to the next thing. I'm going to forget about it. Some people like me can't forget their mistakes, and I keep talking about them 10 and 20 and 30 years later. So I'm probably not a great investor. But really good investors, they failed. They've come to the point where at some point they almost went bankrupt, and ultimately they, failed. they, they, they got through it. But, but in the end, learning how to fail and learning how to recover from it is an important ingredient to being a great investor. David, pivot for me for a moment, and let's talk about your own career, maybe as much as an investor, but just as a business leader, is there a mistake that you've made that you'd be willing to share with our listeners and viewers, kind of what the mistake was, what you learned from that, and now what you do differently in terms of your preparation or your learning or your questions or uh, something you, that you, a mistake you've made, what you've learned from it, and now how you behave differently? Well, um, when Mark Zuckerberg was at Harvard, uh, my now son-in-law was his classmate, and he told me about this company getting started and I said, now, no company started by somebody in college is really going to get very far. It seemed to be a college dating service, and I didn't think there was a demand for that so much. But I was wrong, and I passed on the opportunity to invest when Mark was in college. That probably cost me a lot of money, uh, but I, I mis misunderstood what the company was really going to do. I did the same thing with Jeff Bezos. I heard about what he was doing. I, I got some stock early on, but I told Jeff, I don't think this company is going to get very far. You're not going to be able to beat Barnes & Noble. And, of course, he laughed at me, and... He had the last laugh. David, is there also like a leadership mistake or a mistake you made in terms of a person, without mentioning their name, that you've come now to say, gosh, I've learned a lot from that, so now I ask this question or I do this further due diligence? Something that the leaders that are listening to you, I'm sure, riveted today, 
could change their own um, acumen? I've hired thousands of people and I've not hired thousands of people. And sometimes the people I didn't hire did very well. And sometimes the ones I did hire uh, didn't do as well as I would, I would think. Uh, two people I hired are now well known. I hired uh, Jay Powell uh, to join our firm. He worked there for seven or eight years. He left and I didn't think I'd hear from him again. Thought he was going to retire and he now is the chairman of the Federal Reserve. I hired a person about 25 years ago, a bright young man out of Harvard Business School, and uh, he's now the governor of Virginia. He was uh, Glenn Youngkin, and he's been our firm for many, many years. And now people think he might run for president. So uh, you never know where people are going to wind up. True that. Let's talk about what you call ultimate responsibility. Expand on that principle. Well, I think the really good people who invest are people that um, take responsibility and they admit uh, they made a mistake. I think it's a very good thing to do that. I mean, people like to say, well, uh, if the things work out, they deserve the credit. And if things don't work out, it's not their fault. But I think the really good people are the ones who say, look, it was my mistake and I'll take the responsibility for it. And really good investors like to make the final decision. They don't really want to delegate something to somebody else. They want to be there saying, yes, do this deal or no, don't do this deal. And that's the really great investor's uh, mindset. I'll take the responsibility. I'll be blamed if it goes wrong, but I'm happy to take some of the credit if it goes right. Like you, David, I'm a parent. My, our, my wife and I have three young boys that are 8, 10, and 12. The middle one is my twin, like DNA twin. And he's recently come home from school repeating this mantra, work smarter, not harder, work smarter, not harder, which I, I love philosophically. But like you, I think maybe there isn't sometimes enough emphasis on the value of hard work. It's gotten me to where I am, certainly working smarter to get me to where I am. Will you talk about the value still relevant in our time today of hard yes. work? Well, I, I never thought I was that smart, and I thought the only way I could get ahead was hard work. And that's basically what I've done in my, most of my life. I just worked long hours to make up for what I think is not otherwise great gray matter. Um, hard work is generally a, a, is a good thing to follow. As a, as a rule of thumb, I'd rather back people who are reasonably intelligent and work hard than people who are not that intelligent and don't work hard. In fact, I'd rather back somebody who's maybe not that intelligent and works hard than somebody who's brilliant and doesn't work that hard. Brilliant people are a dime a dozen. It's the brilliant people that work hard are the ones you really want to find and, and work with. And even if they're not brilliant, working hard generally is going to be better than not working hard to produce a good result. Let's revert back to uh, cryptocurrencies. It's one of the areas in which you interview someone about, it's right now at the time of this taping, crypto is, is, is all over the place. We've seen bankruptcies, near bankruptcies from crypto founders. What did you learn from interviewing Mike? Is it Novogratz? Is that how you pronounce his last name? Mike Novogratz one yeah. of the biggest owners of uh, Bitcoin. And he, made, he bought Bitcoin at very, very low prices. And at one point uh, had you know, maybe seven or $8 billion of Bitcoin. Now, after I interviewed him, the market went down in May of, uh, of, of this year. And, and I don't know exactly how much he has of Bitcoin now, what the value is, but he's a big believer in it. He believed that this is a new way of, uh, of creating wealth, which is these cr cryptocurrencies. I think I am somewhat skeptical that they're all going to be uh, wonderful investments. There are 18,000 different cryptocurrencies. And as we talk today, uh, FTX is in a very serious financial bind. I have made some personal investments in companies that service the industry, but I haven't actually bought any of the cryptocurrencies themselves. I don't think cryptocurrency is going away. I think there'll be some regulation of it. But generally, I think there's great demand for it among young people and all over the world.
So David, what would you say to someone like me or one of my peers that's got some money, they want to invest in crypto, they're not gonna sell their home and put the proceeds in, but they wanna diversify. They don't wanna be David Rubenstein when it comes to Amazon or Facebook. They actually wanna be hitting it right. I'm kidding, of course. What would you recommend to someone about crypto investment? Well, as a general rule of thumb, read as much as you can. But remember, remember, crypto is still very, very early in its uh, investment period and very uh, embryonic. But I look at it this way. If you have a certain amount of money and you're going to go to Las Vegas and you're going to gamble that money, and you're prepared to lose it all. That same amount of money is the amount you probably should put into cryptocurrencies because you could lose it all. So if you go to Las Vegas and say, look, I'm prepared to lose $5,000 gambling. I'll spend a couple thousand dollars, get there, have a nice time. And in the end, I'm going to spend $10,000 in Las Vegas for a long weekend. You know, put $10,000 in cryptocurrency, you might have the same impact. You might enjoy it. You might learn something about it. You may not make money. In other words, don't put more money into it than you can afford to lose comfortably. Is there an investment vehicle that, again, the vast majority of people listening to this should be thinking about and studying that you're fond of? No one has a billion dollars that's listening to this, or if they do, um, great. Well, Anything that, you, that interests you in particular, people should be learning more about? The safest investment, theoretically, is U.S. Treasury bills, even though the government sometimes threatens not to, to uh, roll over our debt and to honor our outstanding indebtedness. That's not going to happen. So given the fact that interest rates are up now, you can get a reasonable yield from Treasury bills. But if that's too conservative for you, I would say a money market uh, fund or a stock uh, index fund are probably pretty good, things that track the market. Uh, over the last 100 years or so, the stock markets on average probably goes up by about 6% a year. So leaving inflation aside. So if you knew you were going to get 6% a year for the next five years, each of the five years, that's not a bad investment. And, and, and index funds are relatively inexpensive in terms of fees. And basically, you won't be able to kick yourself saying, I should have bought that stock or should have bought this, because you're basically tracking the entire market. David, you also in the book highlighted Betsy Cohen, the famous investor and, and um entrepreneur and business leader around the topic of SPAC. It's a term we're starting to hear more. Will you remind us what that stands for, what its purpose is? It stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation, basically SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation. And what that means is that if a company wants to go public, um, you normally go through the IPO process. It's very time-consuming, time expensive. It can take a year to be ready to go through an IPO. Uh, sometimes a company like a SPAC, which has already been approved by the SEC, uh, can be used to buy a company that wants to go public but want to do it in a short-circuit way. Uh, the SPACs have not done that well in recent uh, two years or so. It was a flurry about two or three years ago of SPACs. Everybody wanted to take their companies public through a SPAC and short-circuit the IPO process. But today, I would say 95% of those SPACs are probably underwater. So it's an interesting concept. Betsy Cohn is a leader in it. Her SPACs have done reasonably well because she tends to specialize in industries she knows very well, which is typically financial services. But on the whole, I would say SPACs are not for the faint of heart. David, finally, let's conclude the part about the book. I wanna ask you some more questions about um, the world. ESG, we hear a lot about this term now, ESG, environmental, social, and governance. Uh, riff on that. Theoretically, what an investor is supposed to do is get the highest rate of return you can legally. And you buy anything you can, get a good rate of return. ESG is something that is saying, wait a second, we don't want you to just get a good rate of return if you're destroying the environment or if you're uh, shipping jobs offshore or if you're using slave labor, in effect, offshore. You have to worry about the environmental impact, the social impact, and the governance impact of the companies you invest in. So ESG is, an, is, a, is a kind of a, an acronym 
for whether you're doing things that are good for the world as opposed to just making the highest rate of return. Now, some people would say, if you do good things for the world and use good ESG metrics, you will get a higher rate of return. Some people don't agree with that. But ESG is a concept that is designed to kind of m m uh, measure the social impact, really, of, uh, of investments and, and the companies you're investing in. David, the book is extraordinary. I learned a lot. It helped to level set my own kind of thin knowledge on a lot of these topics. It's called How to Invest. Would you take a moment and remind our listeners and viewers your interview program? Uh, I think once I saw you interview Phil Knight, if I'm not mistaken, it was a right. great interview. Talk about where they can find your program. And then I'm going to ask you to talk about who was one of your favorite interviewees and why? What is it you learned from them? Okay, well, thank you for mentioning it. I do an interview show on Bloomberg. I have two of them, but the one that's the best known is called Peer to Peer, where I interview prominent people and try to talk about their lives. I did one just a few hours ago with Lorraine Powell Jobs, who's the widow of Steve Jobs. And I uh, would say of all the people I've done over the years, maybe uh, Jeff Bezos is one of the most interesting ones. He's really, really uh, a good interviewee, very outgoing, had good sense of humor and so forth. But I've interviewed Bill Gates, who's very good, George Bush, um, Bill Clinton, a lot of prominent people. And the show is on Bloomberg. It's also re-broadcast re, uh, many times around the country on PBS. David, what are you encouraged about? Well, um, I, obviously, I'm encouraged that the most recent elections didn't go uh, quite the way that some people predicted. I was afraid we were going to go in a direction that we'd be not uh, pro-democracy. I do believe in democracy, and I think that um, I believe that you know the most recent election probably was a bit more democratic than in some ways, small d democratic than maybe people thought. I also believe that the United States is the greatest country in the world. And while we have our challenges with our own democracy from time to time, there's no other country I'd rather live in or no other country that I think most people would like to live in than this country. David, similar, Libby, last question. Similar to our previous uh, guest interviewee, Ray Dalio, I see you not just as a business leader, but as a, a, a studier, a reader, uh, someone who understands history and the correlation it plays for the future. With that basis, um, what are you worried about? Well, I do worry about climate change because at some point my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to have to deal with uh, that problem. I do worry about the debt we have in the United States. We have $30 trillion of, of debt in our federal government. That's a problem. I do worry about the lack of bipartisanship now in our Congress and within the country. Uh, and it makes it difficult to get anything done. And, and I guess I also worry about... Uh, day-to-day, -day, uh, my own health. Uh, I'm now 73 years old, and when you get to be my age, you're not as you know young as you used to be, and you recognize that you've lived more than you're going to live. And so what I'm trying to do is get as much done when I have my brain and my body still intact, and at some point, they won't be as good as they are now. And I recognize when you get to this age, things slow down a bit. David, to that point, can you tell us what's next for you? Is there more philanthropy? Is there, are you part of the Giving Fund? We actually had the, yes. the leader of the um, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that I believe uh, Warren Buffett's yes. part of as well. And he talked right. about you on the, on the interview. Uh, more books, more interviews. What's next for you? I have a PBS special coming out next year on, it's on eight American iconic symbols. So I basically did an hour on each of them, and I think you'll find it quite interesting. It'll be airing on PBS next year, but the symbols are things like the Golden Gate Bridge, the Hollywood sign, Fenway Park, the American Cowboy, the, the Bald Eagle, uh, Stone Mountain. And basically we go through the history of these kinds of things, try to educate Americans about our iconic symbols, and also give more information about our history. So that's one thing I have coming up next year. David Rubenstein, thank you for coming back to your second appearance on Leadership. Your current book is How to Invest, Masters on the Craft. One of the things I like most about you, David,
beyond the philanthropy I've talked about is you use your platform and your spotlight to highlight other people and their wisdom, their mistakes, their learning. And I think it's a great, um, it's a great pollination that you've given not just our country, but our world. Thank you again, sir. Best Thank of success to you. Thanks a lot. Bye. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>